called Spring Training. We're walking through the book of Titus. It's the fundamentals of the faith. And every year, baseball players go back to the fundamentals. And they've got to do those well. And each week, we've been reading through the entire book. And so today, Mr. Kanan Jeffers, where are you? You still unplugging? Where would you go? There you are right there. Is going to read to us the book, the letter of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God and the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be a reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy or gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This, tes- this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish, Jewish myths and the commands of people away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be uh, cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and glory of 
Yep, and godly life in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, pure, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, having nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works as so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, today we're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And if you want to know where we are, we have an image, the home plate. And that is uh, what we're using to uh, show the outline. And right now we're looking at the world. The gospel is on top. It shows us, uh, this is, and if you notice, there's one in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, because the gospel is before us. It's uh, behind us, it permeates everything we do. And so today, we last week we looked at leadership, and now we're going into the world. And we're going to look at what it means to know your culture. And we're going to begin with a little video.
All right. Well, those young men from Hickory walked into that building were probably overwhelmed by the size of it. They knew they were walking into hostile territory. And so the coach that played by Gene Hackman did a good thing. And he showed them the, the free throw line is no longer than it is in Hickory. The basket is no higher than it is in Hickory. And he wanted to settle in their minds where you've been playing. It's the same thing here. And he went on in that movie. I remember I couldn't find the scene. I wanted to show it to you where he was, he was, uh, coaching his players and he said I want you to stick with your man I want I want you to stick with him and I, I want you to think of him as chewing gum and by the end of the game I want you to know what flavor he is and the, the two points that I want to make from those illustrations are this uh, a good coach was constantly teaching his players he was showing that the dimensions of that gym were no different than theirs and that they needed to know their opponents in the same way, when we walk into the world, we can get overwhelmed by the size of it. We can get overwhelmed by what's going on in politics, in our schools. We can get overwhelmed, but we need to see there's a commonality to all cultures. And we need to know our opponents. We need to know those who oppose the gospel. We, we could say it like this. What gum does the typical unbeliever or the unchurched person in the valley chew? Do we know what kind of gum they chew? Do we know what their interests are? Today, we're going to learn about culture. We're going to be cultural scouts, so to speak. In, in sports, they'll send a scout out to observe the team that they're going to play next week, and they watch the team. They, they, uh, they take notes on the team, and they bang, bring a report back, and they form a plan. And that's what we've got to do with our culture. And that's what Paul's doing here in Titus 1, 10 through 16. He's observing culture. And here's, here's the main point. I want to give it to you up front. To effectively make disciples of all nations, we must know the culture in which we live and the responsibility we have. That is kind of the preview. And we're going to see the culture in which we live and the responsibility we have. Father, this is your word. It's a good word. It's a comforting word. It's a convicting word. You knew exactly what you were doing. Long before you created the world, you knew exactly how to teach us and train us. You knew exactly what to leave us. I pray now as we study Titus today and as we learn about culture, I pray that we would be effective missionaries for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm getting a little bit of feedback there. First and foremost, let me just read those verses 10 through 16 again to get set the context, and then we'll go by go through uh, verse by verse. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by the teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul does not mince any words there. In fact, he gives you ten things that describe false teachers and those who live um, opposing the truth. 
We're going to look at those today, but I, I wanted to talk about culture in, de- in general, because what we're going to find out today is all cultures have an identity, all cultures have an influence, and all cultures have their own iniquity, every culture. But I want to talk about culture first because we got to know where we live. There's different kinds of culture. There's warm weather cultures. There's cold weather cultures. There's corporate driven cultures like Denver and Dallas. There's industrial driven cultures like Pittsburgh and Pueblo. There's re- resort destination cultures, right? There are resort destination cultures. We live in one. Beach towns, ski resorts. There are cultures where people are very active. There are cultures where people are very inactive. And knowing these things helps understand the people who live in these places. And so Paul begins with this place, this place of Crete. He says in verse 12, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They don't tell the truth, they live in the flesh, and they're unmotivated for anything but themselves. Let me read you some commentary on the place of Crete. Crete was proverbial in the ancient world for its moral decadence. The ancient historian uh, Poly- Polybius wrote that this was almost impo- it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public pos- policy more unjust than that in Crete. This is by a historian of the time. Cicero also stated, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. It's the Vegas, and I'm not I'm not throwing out stereotypes, but I'm just I'm just saying if we were trying to find a city that that prides itself on debauchery, it's the Vegas of the old old uh, Old Testament of the New Testament of the ancient times. And so here's what Paul does: he he wisely doesn't criticize the Cretans himself. He actually quotes. He says one of their own. And of course, by this generalization, he doesn't mean every single person in Crete uh, exhibits all these characteristics. But he's trying to show that culture, here are the sins that stick out in your culture. That was the place in which they lived. And then there was a people. Look at verse 10. For there are many. So this wasn't just a few, but there are many. And he describes them. They're insubordinate. They will not submit to authority. They're empty talkers. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they're deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And what many think is Paul's alluding to is he's alluding to those who are Jews who became Christians but didn't want to let go of the law. And if you look down in 15 and 16, he carries on. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. The idea behind that is he wanted to show, um, it, similar to what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye is good, the whole body will be good. But if your eye is off, everything is dark. And so he says, to the pure, all things are pure. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. It's because their eyesight, as Jesus said, is bad. Everything is dark. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now here's the key statement. Verse 16. They profess to know God. They profess. They proclaim with their mouth, I know God. But they deny Him by their works. They deny Him by their works. Belief is proclaimed, but their behavior proves otherwise. 
I could I could tell you all day long that I, I really believe in day trading. I think day trading is the way to go. And then you could come up to me after the service and you go, how many do you belong to E-Trade? How many day trades have you done? None. And it would expose my deception. It would expose this false idea that I really agree with day trading when I've never traded anything like that in my life. And unfortunately, there are people There are people in America, in Colorado, in the valley, who who profess to know God, but they deny Him with their works. And Paul goes on to say that they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They are detestable. The the idea, it's not they're detestable to to Paul. They're they're detestable in God's sight. They're disobedient. They don't listen to what God calls them to do. And they're unfit. They're out of shape. They don't make the team. They're disqualified literally by God. These are the people who are in this culture who are infiltrating the church. And what Paul shows in Titus, if you were to go, and we're not going to go there, but if you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and read 3 and 4 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you would see the exact same language Paul uses with Timothy he does with Titus. And he's, I think what he's trying to show is Ephesus and Crete are both in need of the gospel. There are sins that permeate our culture. In my outline here I have from Kenya to Colorado. I remember visiting with a buddy of mine named Dennis Armande. He was a big guy uh, who came and did a, the program in Texas where I was at. And he went back to Kenya and he goes back to Kenya. And I, I, I asked him one day, I said, I guess it's, it's different there in that culture, right? I mean, it seems to be Kenya is a little more laid back. And, and so you've kind of got to adjust things. And he, in his, in his Kenyan voice said, Oh, no, no. He said, the sins are just the same. I said, tell me, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, they'll be late for church, but they won't miss a kickoff of any soccer game. I thought to myself, okay, nothing's different over there in Kenya. There are certain sins of every culture. And you go to Texas, many people, many people go to church on Sunday in Texas, not because they want to worship the Lord, not because they want to grow in the knowledge of God, not because they want to deepen their faith, but that is where good business is at. I was thinking, I, I'm, I was born in Oklahoma. I couldn't really think of anything except Oklahoma's license plate says Oklahoma is okay. We're just okay. But we too have cultural idols. America has cultural idols. The use of our time is an idol. Uh, the addiction to sports is an idol. Family uh, centeredness is an idol. Liberal politics is, is something we wrestle with in this country. We can be our own worst enemies. We can be our own worst idols. America has them. Colorado has them. Happy Valley has them. My question to you is, do we know our cultural idols? Do we know the cultural idols of our country, of our state, of this valley? I've only been here for five years. So to many of you, I'm not a local. I'm just an observer. But I have observed some things. 
But those of you who would consider yourselves local, do you know what your cultural idols are? Do we have blind spots that that we don't see because we've been here so long that we may miss the cultural idols? I think what Paul was doing here, he was trying to shock the Cretans into thinking through, what are your idols? And so you and I have to be aware of where we live. There has to be an awareness that we have to be morally discerning. We have to know our city and we have to know our town. We have to know how to reach our town. And so if I were to call us today to do three things, the first would be what we're already doing is to serve our community because first they've got to know we care. Right? The old, the old saying goes, they're going to never um, care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we've got to serve our city. And we'll, we'll get there next week and we'll get there the week after. But I just wanted to show you from chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the end of 13, it says, of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from a lawless and from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then in 314, and let our people, so this is Paul talking to Titus, he's taking ownership, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so I think we need to serve our community, and that's why we get out and we do the eagle cleanup. You may not think that is a, a, um, a worthwhile event. Not a whole lot of people saw it, but more and more people know we were out there cleaning up our city. They know we care. They know this isn't just a bunch of people who show up and want to use a school. They care for this city. And secondly, we've got to study our town. We've got to study our town. You have in front of you today, and I just wanted to show it to you, uh, two handouts, how to be on mission in the city and study your city. How do we live on mission in this town? How do we live on mission in this valley? Number one, this handout, which I think is spectacular, says we've got to get grounded in the gospel. We've got to understand the good news of Jesus Christ, which means we've got to understand the bad news. So we've got to be grounded in the gospel. We've got to understand that God created man upright, man turned away from God. And God sent his own son to live a life that we could not live and die a death we should have died, and to rise again from that death, to conquer sin, death, and Satan. And those who believe in him will be justified. We've got to get grounded in that and how that affects our life, how it affects our marriages, how it affects our minds, how it affects our finances, how it affects everything. Personally, we've got to be grounded in the gospel, but then we've got to learn our cities, or in our case, our town's story. Do we know our town's story? Do we know the history? I was talking to my wife this week. I said, are we going to teach our kids? I mean, are we going to teach them Oklahoma history? I mean, the scissor tail bird there? Are we going to tell them about? No! Are we going to teach them Texas history? Sure, we'll teach them a little bit. But we've got to teach them Colorado. They've got to know where they're growing up. And then we've got to engage in the life of our city. Are we out engaged in our city? Or do we do like Robert Lewis said and we come home from work and that drawbridge goes down and we park our car and then that drawbridge goes up not to be seen? Do our neighbors know us? And then fourthly, and again, I ask you, those who have been here a while, do you know your cities, your towns, idols? Do you discern them? What is it that drives my neighbors' lives? What is it that those who live in my city could not imagine living without 
What, if it were taken away, would bring my city to its knees? And then we've got to learn to retell our town's story with the gospel. It's a great handout. And then the second handout is is really, really practical. Study your city. It says, no people to reach people, all missionaries. And if you're a Christian, you're a missionary, have got to be the most tensional people on the earth. And on the back of that handout, it gives you 19 questions. I give it to you. I would encourage all of us to read through this, answer these questions. And I'd love to get together and just see what are you seeing and what's happening in our town? Who's moving into our town? What buildings are going up in our town? What buildings are coming down in our town? How many schools are there in our town? How many people are there in this town? For everyday missionaries, the questions are endless. Bank clerks, grocery store checkers, hairstylists, and property development workers can tell you so much of what you need to know about your city because they are in the city, working in the city, and up to date on what's going on in the city. Perhaps if you don't know where to start, you should get a trim. If you can get a trim, right? And practice asking the person cutting your hair these questions. And I love how they end this. Dear Christian, are you studying your city? Do we know our town? Do we know our town? We need to serve the town. That's why primarily the elders and I decided to join the Eagle Chamber of Commerce. We wanted to be in on what, so we knew what was going on in the town. At least we know the happenings of our town. We now, I've met some of them. I can sit at Yeti's and talk to them. Well, tell me more about this project that's going on over here by the Eagle Pool and Ice Rink. And you get to hear how the town is interacting just by asking questions. And then we need to study our town. Thirdly, and this is the tough one for, for many. Uh, we need to silence the false teachers by speaking the truth in love. Paul says in verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. And some think, are these just families or are these house churches? It seems to be back in that time there was not much difference between families and house churches, but it's the idea that these house churches, people were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. They were creeping in and they were teaching what they not teach and they needed to be silenced. Paul goes on in 13 and 14 and says, this testimony is true. He's talking about one of the Cretans who says it himself. Epimenides says this. This testimony is true. Therefore, look what it says here. It says, rebuke them sharply. That word sharply is only used one other time in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 13. And it's the word translated there is severe. There needs to be a severe rebuke. And I don't think, I think we've lost the art of how to give a rebuke in our culture. We live in a culture that doesn't want to offend and we've learned not how not to give a rebuke. We don't know how to do it. And it says here, Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Now notice, we may miss the beauty of a rebuke. Rebukes have reasons. They're not just, let me be flippant about telling you you're wrong. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. There's a reason we give a rebuke. Paul's concern, our concern should be for the restoration of people. Not only false teachers, but then when Christians start following false teaching teachers, we need teaching, we need to rebuke them sharply. Here, in their case, they were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. I mean, if, if I hear in the Veil Daily somebody writes that teaching my kids creation is equivalent to child abuse, 
I can't personally read that and say, oh, that's a viable option. I've got to write something about that. What are your neighbors saying that's false? Uh, What's going on in Christendom across America? I've printed one of these for those that are on the back table, and I want to be careful about you getting these because I don't want these hanging around. But what's going on in America these days is we we have gotten so far from the Scriptures, we are now telling people through books. Everybody can write a book. Everybody can be their own publisher. You just get a blog, you put together some articles, and, and then you bind it and you got a book. I did it for Lauren this week. You use the copier and she's like, I'm published. I'm like... But what people are doing, they're using this medium, and now the big book that's out there that says the New Testament shows that you can be a gay Christian. That is the, that is the hot topic of this culture. The two right now that are on the front burners, so to speak, are gender issues and grace and following the commands of the Scripture. And it's dividing the evangelical church. A gentleman came out, Matthew Vines wrote a book called God and the Great Christian. And so Dr. Albert Moeller and some men from Southern Seminary wrote God and the Great Christian, a response. We've printed off 30 copies. I would encourage you to take one and read one because you're going to have to know how to defend this. This is, I've been talking about this since we've been in ministry. This is going to be the key issue. This will divide. If this is a picture and a parable, this will divide the church. And you will have the evangelical church over here. This speaks nothing to you, so don't read into the illustration. You'll have the evangelical church over here who holds to the truth of the Scripture, and then you'll have others who are going against it. That's what's going on in our culture. Plus, what we've got going on in our culture now is there are people arguing about, well, it's all about grace, and we talk about grace, and don't tell anybody what to do. It's just about grace. And men who are trying to do the right thing said, absolutely, it's about grace. But grace empowers us to live out what God commands. It doesn't excuse us. And so, same thing's going to happen. You'll have those that hold to the Scripture, and we'll do it over. You'll have those who hold to the Scripture, and then you guys will be the ones that don't. And I, and I thought about it yesterday. It's, it's, the issue is, is on holiness, and here's the key. Grace doesn't equal holiness. Grace enables you to become holy as God commands. That's what's dividing the evangelical church today. So we have to know our culture. And we have to silence those who are speaking against. That's what Al Mohler's doing. I will silence you with the medium that I can use. If you're going to write a book, I'm going to write one back. And he put it out for free. It's an e-book. And I praise God for organizations that print this for free. But they need to be rebuked sharply. So what are the sins of our community? Do we know them? We need to be wise. And a rebuke. Let me just let me just camp on that for a second. Let me see Proverbs twenty seven five. This is a great, great proverb. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Memorize that. Think about that. Rebukes are loving. 
They can be given in an unloving manner, but the rebuke in and of itself is a loving thing. Paul wanted them to be sound in faith. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians, we believe, and I think it's the next verse, we believe, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We believe, and so we speak. Brothers and sisters, if you and I believe, we are called to speak. We are called to speak up in our culture. We show them our, we serve them and we show them our works because we care. We discern our culture because we care. And we speak to the issues of our day because we care enough to confront the false teaching. My question to myself, to all of us, do we do that on a regular basis? If not, why not? People need to know the gospel. They're not going to figure it out without a speaking Christian. And so Paul calls, and he begins with the leaders, but he'll go on to say, and you see it in chapter 2, that we are to be sound in speech, that we cannot be condemned, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He calls the leaders and he calls the young men to speak up and to speak out. Why is this so important? I end with Romans 10, 11 through 15. Romans 10, 11 through 15 says this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone, someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. My friends, that is not just a verse for myself or anybody from this pulpit. That is for every single Christian. The world will not believe unless they hear, and they will not hear unless we speak, and we are sent. We are to go out. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. God is so sovereign. He has you exactly where He wants you. He has you in the neighborhood that He wants you in. But I chose to live there. I know, but God God wants you there. He has you around the people that He has you around, in your office, on your street, in your classroom, because he knows that you, Christian, and me, Christians, right? We've been put here for a purpose. That we have a unique way of speaking the gospel to those in our circle of influence. And when you hear false teaching, this word today will not let us get away from the fact that people need to be silenced. And they need to be spoken to in love. Because we have a very, very important message. It's the good news. And more often than not, people will not understand the good news unless they understand the bad news. So let us bring to our circles of influence the glorious good news, not shine away from telling people the bad news of their own culture, their own sin, and giving them a hope. It's what Amos did, right? If you were in Sunday school today, he gave nine, almost nine full chapters of burden. And he ended with blessing. There is hope. And that's what we need to bring to the world. 
Father, help us to understand our culture. Give wisdom to those of us who need to stand up and speak to silence the unbeliever. Let us not be afraid of offending. Let us not be afraid of awkward situations. But let us be bold. I thank you for Paul. I thank you for his wisdom. Pray that we would live out in our culture the way he called Titus to live into his. We would serve, we would study, and we would speak. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.